All in the words of St. Francis, when he met Brother Dominic on the road to Umbrio, hi. <laughs> it's been five years since I've been here, and so it's, it's really good to be back. And it looks like the prayers we prayed five years ago have worked. The church is still standing. <laughs> so, and, and from what I hear, very, very healthy and very shiny. Um, what I want to, you know, I, I just pray, Lord, what's a word I could share, particularly for those that are having hands laid on them or being received or reaffirmed or confirmed. And the epistle for today hit two, two things. One is right about in the middle, if you want to look in your bulletin. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught by us. And then the very last line, verse 5 uh, of chapter 3, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. You know, it's going to happen later and happens to all of us as we try to follow Jesus is we can't do it apart from his presence. I mean, the older I get and the longer I'm around, the more I realize that apart from his grace, I've got zippo. <laughs> but, but with his grace, I have a lot. And so given that, then the scriptures tell us how we are to stand firm, to be steadfast, uh, to persevere. We hear it over and over again um, in Ephesians chapter 6. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand, and then he goes on to say, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist and the breastplate of righteousness in place. And then, then if we look uh, to Revelation, to that day, Paul's talking about the revelation of John, if any is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Everywhere we look in the scripture, we, we find this you know, call to stand firm, to be steadfast. Listen to Jesus. Stand firm and you will win life. And in Matthew, you will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Standing firm to the end will be saved. It's how we produce fruit. Jesus tells the parables of importunity. You remember the woman with the judge, keep at it, keep knocking, and it'll work. Be persistent. And the friend who wants bread at midnight goes knocking at the door. And Jesus ends by saying, ask, knock, seek. This is true in life as well as scripture, whether it's learning to play the piano or selling pianos. If you're persistent, the odds are that you will do okay. You're not necessarily going to become an accomplished pianist, but you'll learn to play it and you'll be able to sell some. It's true in football too. I'll tell you a story. Um, when I was a freshman in college, I was walking around, it was William & Mary, and it's a pretty campus, and I was trying to get 
my bearings, and, and I, I was just walking around, and I was going by the football stadium, and I had played some football in high school, and one year we had won the state championship, and uh, Frank Gifford, I don't know if any of you remember him, maybe Kathy Lee, his wife, <laughs> he came and was our speaker, and he told a story about his rookie year. He said he got a split lip, and he thought, good, I'm out for the game. The doctor came over, put some stitches in it, and then he said, Ali Sherman called me up, and he said, I knew he didn't want my advice. I was a rookie, and certainly he wasn't going to put me back in the game with stitches in my lip, but he said, sure enough, I was back in the game. And the one thing I took away from that that still sticks with me, he says, it's not the number of times you get knocked down, but the number of times you get back up that matters. And as I rounded that corner, a guy named Marv Levy was in the coach at William & Mary. He went on to be coach, I think, for Buffalo and some other teams. But he was yelling at these guys pushing a sled, and I was so glad I wasn't out there in that uh, Williamsburg heat and humidity that day. He's yelling at them, be tenacious, men, be tenacious. <laughs> and I thought, there it is again. Stick with it. Hang in there. Um, but there's another piece to standing firm that has to do with our hearts that that last line in the epistle, you know, uh, leads us to. May the Lord direct your heart to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Um, Henry Nouwen says that the heart is the center of our being where God has hidden the divine gifts of hope, love, and trust. It's not the center of our emotions as the mind is to the intellect, but it's the center of our being where he's hidden the divine gifts of hope, love, and trust. So I want to look at those three in terms of following and standing firm in them, standing firm in trust. We hear it all through scripture. Habakkuk chapter three, it's a horrible scene. I mean, though the fig tree does not bud, there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive tree fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior, even though it's, it's, it's a really bad situation. Daniel, remember the lion's den guy and all of that? If we are thrown into the blazing fire, the Lord will serve, the Lord we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Even if God doesn't do what we think he needs to do, we're standing firm. And then Lamentations, which is Jeremiah's lament over the destruction of Jerusalem in 586, the entire five chapters is all about his sorrow over this and right smack in the middle, he has this line that you all know. The whole, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. 
Therefore, I will wait for him. I mean, it's Abba faith. God is on the throne. He does have the last word. Um, as Don said this morning, God wins in the end. And, and we need to hold on to that. It's, it's not easy, but stand firm, hang in there. You think about Paul when he wrote to the Philippians. He, it's, it's really a thank you note. They were worried about him, and they sent an offering. And he says at the beginning, chapter 1, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Now, you have to go back in Acts to see what happened to him. And I'm going to race through it pretty fast. Chapter 21, he's unjustly set up by the Jews. He's accused of things he did not do. Chapter 22, he makes a defense before the Sanhedrin. And because of a conspiracy to kill him, he's moved to Caesarea. There he goes before Felix. And he says, I cheerfully make my defense. He sits there two years in chapter 24, then Festus rules. Paul goes before Agrippa in chapter 26, and he says, I am fortunate to give, he's fortunate to give his testimony, he says. He's sent to Rome, shipwrecked for three months, spends two years in prison there, and the Philippian church is concerned and sends an offering. You'd think he'd grumble. You know, you think he'd say, look, you sprung Peter from jail. What about me? You know, uh, th these five years have been miserable. But that's not what he says. In chapter 4 of Philippians, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And remember what he said in chapter 1. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what has happened has actually served to advance the gospel. Well, look at what his steadfastness had produced. First of all, he had all of those testimonies in front of the most powerful people in the world at that time. Luke was also traveling with him until all this happened. And once Paul is arrested, we get Luke, the gospel, and we get the book of Acts. He writes stuff down. And we also have the prison epistles, speaking of writing things down. And they believe the first missionaries to England, which is our claim to the Anglicanism were from prison guards that probably got converted by hanging around Paul too much. So it really has served to advance the gospel. Anyway, that's trust, following trust, following hope. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 4. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given to us. So how do we follow? What empowers, what strengthens us to do this? It's God's love poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And then Paul tells Timothy to run the race, to finish the race, there's a crown for all who finish. That's our hope. We don't have to come in first place. That's the good news. All we have to do is get in the race and run it. Then there's gold all around. I got to spend some time in Luke chapter 14 uh, in the end of August, beginning of September. I was applying for a church up in northern Georgia. 
And those were the gospel readings for the two Sundays I was going to be there. And there's a line in chapter 14 that just really got hold of me. Uh, Jesus says, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Also, they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. See, that's, that's our hope, the resurrection of the righteous. I, I shared briefly last night at dinner about a guy in my parish, Pat Johns, who uh, was an army colonel. And when he was dying, I, I went to see him. And he looked at me with the greatest smile. And, and he just said, Carl, I can't wait to get my inheritance. I mean, he knew there was a crown laid up for him. And, and I was a brand new priest, brand new rector. I walked out of there saying, I need to learn this. <laughs> and ever since then, I've been trying to figure out treasure in heaven, inheritance, and how this life plays into that. Um, one of the things my wife and I do since I've retired is we go to a really poor ghetto area in East Orlando called Biflo. I don't know if you've heard of Biflo. You all know the name. And uh, it, it, it's uh, the girl my wife mentors. Her mother is a prostitute and drug addict. And my wife calls her up every morning at 7.30 to wake her up because her mother isn't going to help her help her get dressed, and then we send one of the teachers over, or one of the teachers goes over and picks her up and brings her, and we go out just once a week and spend a couple hours with kids mentoring them, um, but I think of that as one thing that I've been able to do that I don't really get any reward for other than bragging about it to you all, <laughs> and, and thinking, you know, that's the way to live, to build up treasure in heaven, live for others not yourself. As soon as the passage that I was preaching on was deny yourself, even die to self. And you begin to think, what does that really mean? How can I live that out? Um, and anyway, I, I want to tell you a story about two monks and two billionaires. Um, because some people spend all their time accumulating wealth here. The two monks, one monk's walking along and he stops at another monk's little chateau. And uh, he goes in and all he has is a bed and a desk. A and he says, why don't you have any furniture? And he says, well, why don't you? And the first monk says, well, I'm just passing through. And the second monk says, so am I. <laughs> and so uh, the, these two guys, one was the guy who's the CEO of Netflix, Reed Hastings. And the other was a baseball collector, Lynn Scully. And th they were talking about giving away stuff. I mean, Lynn Scully was giving away, giving away, not selling, his autographed baseball by Babe Ruth. And that, that dates me. But um, anyway, uh, Jane Polly looked at him and said, why are you doing that? And one of them looked at him and said, well, Jane, we all die. It's like ding, 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 ding. <laughs> what is life really about? These guys have gotten it. Um, there's a little book out there called Rediscover Jesus, and it's um, got a chapter in it called What If? And the gist of it is, what if everything Jesus said was in fact true? Uh, I started on a quest of this during the COVID years, just going through my Bible and saying, you know, what are the things he said that 
I would really probably challenge, because he said some pretty hard things, Jesus. Anyways, so, so this guy, what if um, we do have to account for how we lived our life? What if heaven and hell are real? What if uh, a really incredible eternity exists? If treasure in heaven is an investment we can make? What if uh, there really is a resurrection of the righteous and an inheritance? What if Pat Johns, Colonel Pat Johns, was right? Um, what if the Bible does want us to invest in our next uh, life? And we really are never ceasing spiritual beings um, to follow him. You know, what if those things are true? That's our ultimate hope. And that brings us to it. We have a lot of proximate hopes, but the ultimate hope is that. Anyway, I want to go on to following love. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's been a favorite scripture of mine for, for years, and I'm still working on it because it's, it's sort of, you know, got me. I, I was an evangelical charismatic for so many years, and just, just confess Jesus, and, you know, it's all set. That's not what Jesus said. I mean, Jesus didn't say that. He said, not everyone who calls me Lord, you know, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And he doesn't just say it here. It's over and over again in Scripture. So what is the will of his Father in heaven? That's pretty important, isn't it? How many of you know that? Most of you know? Really? I'm not going to call on you. Um, it, he's real clear about that, too. He says, the will of my Father is that you love God and love one another. Um, just goes on and on. Uh, about that. He never misses it. A good friend of mine who's now gone to be with the Lord, Brennan Manning, used to say, love God and do as you please. And that used to bug me because I, I would think, well, that's not what Jesus said. But if you listen to it carefully, it does work. If you really love God, you'll be doing his will. You know, love does that to us. It brings us in to someone else's will and it becomes ours. I want to share with you a quote to sort of almost wrap it up. It's from A Man for All Seasons. Any of you know the story of Thomas More and the Tower and all of that? Um, his daughter comes to argue for his life. He's about to be executed. And uh, she says, in any state that was half good, you'd be raised up high, not here, for what you've done already. It's not your fault the state's three-quarters bad. Then if you elect to suffer for it, Father, you elect yourself a fool, which he knows would go against his humility. Thomas More says, that's very neat, Meg, but look now. If we lived in a state where virtue was profitable, common sense would make us saintly. But since we see that avarice, anger, pride, and stupidity commonly profit far beyond charity, modesty, justice, and thought, stand fast a little, even at the risk of being a hero. She tries one more time, but in reason, haven't you done as much as God can reasonably want? She's crying at this point. And he says, well, finally, it isn't a matter of reason. Finally, Meg, it's a matter of love. Now, I, I want to tell you a story about the person that I first heard use this quote. His name was Ted Jones. He was Bishop of Indianapolis. He, he was a honest to goodness liberal. And I was a newly baptized in the spirit 
charismatic evangelical, and I had so much fun making fun of him um, until one day. <laughs> um, I, I, I hate to, to admit these things, but I was hoping to educate him. He was coming for confirmation, so I had written out a Terry Fulham teaching on equipping for ministry is what Terry called it. I called it confirmation or the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And, and I gave it, I sent it to him before he came. I said, I want you to understand this is what I'm teaching here. And uh, anyway, after the service, we're walking through the church and he stops and he says, what's that smell? And it was 1839 Revival Gothic Church and we literally had bats in the belfry. And they would often fight to the death in our lanterns. On Sunday morning, it was quite a show if they chose to do it because they'd bleed and it was a bit kind of, anyway, I said, it's probably guano. And I said, do you know what that is? And he goes, yes, I, I know what it is. He said, no, it's really sweet. And I looked at him and I said, well, scripture says that when the presence of God fills a place, it's a very sweet smelling offering. And I said, you prayed for 24 people this morning from PhDs from the University of Louisville to a street person. And I said, all ages, a motley group. And it was just beautiful to see that. I think God was blessing. He wanted to change the topic at that point. <laughs> and he said, by the way, thanks for your peace on the Holy Spirit. I read it to the House of Bishops. <laughs> I said, oh, geez. I, anyway, I... He said, I don't agree with it, but I thought it was interesting the way it was put together. Then he added, you know, there's a group in your church that wants to plant a mission in Hanover, which was a neighboring town. There's a couple here from Madison. You may remember Hanover. And anyway, uh, I said, no, I, I didn't know that. And he said, well, the guy made an appointment with me, drove the 100 miles to Indianapolis to meet with me, and I told him that, until Christ Church doesn't have room for these people, I'm not going to okay a mission. And secondly, even if I did, Carl would be the vicar. <laughs> this guy didn't like me so much that <laughs> he drove all the way back, the 100 miles, came storming into my office and told me what Ted Jones had said to him. I started to cry. I said, he showed me more love in that moment. And all I've done is be snide and critical and you know he he just showed me following love at that moment I'll, I'll not forget that one last word to close with and, and this one has really stuck with me and I hope it'll be helpful to you it's towards the it's the very end of the gospel of John as a matter of fact it's after the three times Peter denies uh, Jesus and all of that and and uh, Peter is asking Jesus about John what's happening with him and uh Jesus says, if I want him to remain alive until I return, he says, what is that to you? You must follow me. For some reason, maybe a year ago, the Lord gave me that scripture, and it has helped me so much. I, I give it to you as a free gift. When someone criticizes me, I hear the Lord say, what is that to you, Father? When someone praises me, what is that to you, Father? Follow me. For either met expectations or unmet expectations, what is that to you? Internally, externally, 
that's an incredible word, and I had never realized that Jesus ended it. And it's all about being followed and hanging in there. Lord, I lift up this congregation. I pray that your word will take root in our hearts and bear fruit in our lives, all for the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.